Amen. Amen. If you could come back in and take your seat. You had your five minutes. That's enough. Come on in. Although it was mentioned on the announcements, and I'm not supposed to talk about announcements anymore, I'm going to do it anyways. Um, I mean, what's the worst case scenario? They fire me. Um, the harvest dinner that we do down at the Moose Club, which is coming up very soon, uh, it's in your uh, bulletin notice, uh, it, it's a big deal. We, we feed between three and 400 people in this town every year who come through the doors of the Moose Club, and we feed them a full Thanksgiving dinner. In order to do that, we need all hands on deck. So, out on the bulletin board as you leave, on the right-hand side of those glass doors that you go out, there is a bulletin board, and on that bulletin board, there's a list of stuff that we need for food, and it even tells you a little bit about how that food needs to come and when. So, if you could help, rather than wait until the last minute when... One of the deacons has to stand up and say, okay, I need this, this, and this. Can I have hands for it? Instead of waiting to the last minute and actually frustrating and causing the deacons to be worried, how about you sign up quickly so they can say, wow, it's a done deal. We're ready to go. So that's out on the bulletin board before you leave. Um, how many of you guys uh, would be familiar with the phrase, if somebody were to say to you, I feel like I'm walking through a minefield right now. How many of you would be aware of what that phrase would seem to indicate? Yeah? Okay. I want to suggest to you that um, it it refers to the sense that something that you're dealing with is dangerous and even explosive in nature. And so this morning, I am suggesting to you that I feel like I am going to be tiptoeing through a minefield because I feel like what I have to share uh, has a level of import and significance, but it could be uh, a dangerous kind of message. So, what I would like you to do is just take a moment, if you would, and close your eyes. Just close your eyes, take a breath. You're in a safe place, no one's going to touch you. Uh, Just take a breath and center your heart on the Lord right now. Just, Just take a moment. And press into the Lord. Lean into Jesus right now. Ask God to help you to hear His heart in what is being said and that you would align yourself with His designs and His purpose. That you would set aside your agenda And you would say, thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to have hearts to hear, ears to hear what the Spirit would say to this church this morning. And that we would be responsive. We, we would not merely take it in as uh, academia. It's not mere information. <clears throat> but Father, it is a challenge that You are giving to us. And we're asking, Father, that ahead of time, 
we would sign on the dotted line our name and say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Whatever you ask, I will do. And where it seems impossible, I remember even what we sang this morning. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you. That when I am weak and I lean into you, I find my strength in you. So I trust you, Jesus. Have your way with us today, I pray. In the name of Christ. Amen. Um, Every message that I preach, I put time into, I put energy into. uh, I want to try to hear the heart of God uh, and be able to convey it in a way that is uh, true and biblical, but also interesting and engaging. Uh, And I've put probably a bit more time into this particular message because it really kind of hits at the core of what I feel for us. So in... Speaking this morning, I might refer to my notes a bit more than normal. Uh, That doesn't take away from the sense of it being the Word of the Lord. It is just merely reflective that I want to make sure that I catch everything. Um, How many of you have ever been... Let me ask it this way. Have any of you never been in an elevator? Can I see your hands? You have never been in an elevator? I didn't think so. I have to figure in this day and age, everybody's been in an elevator at some point. Um... Karen and I were on vacation this last September, just about a month or so ago, and uh, we were in Myrtle Beach, and we stayed at a condo, and our particular unit that fell within this condo complex was on the 18th floor of 24 floors. And uh, every single day, in order to get up to our condo unit or back down to the beach or the pool, we would have to use The elevator, well, except for that one night in which someone decided to uh, cook bacon in the middle of the night and burnt the bacon and set off a fire alarm, and the whole condo complex had to be evacuated down 18 floors, not using the elevator. It was a fun night, I must say. Um, But if you've ridden in an elevator, you have to realize there are almost some understood unspoken rules of etiquette. There are things that you have to know when you get on that elevator. You're, you're kind of packed in like sardines into this very small enclosed room. You're standing close to people you've never met. You try really hard not to touch them. And nobody talks. You don't meet anybody's eye. Everybody just stares straight ahead at the monitor as the floors tick off. Is that true? It's kind of weird how that all works. Um, You you just watch floor after floor. 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, 10, 11, 12, 14. Did you notice there's no 13? Did you notice that? Did they really think we're stupid? There's 24 floors that are there. There's really only 23 if you count because they take away number 13. As if somehow number 13 really is bad luck. I've watched while Karen and I would go up and down every single day, people would be standing outside waiting for the elevator, talking together. I I can remember one occasion. They're standing outside talking about golf that day. 
So my ears perk up. I want to know, where do you go? How much does it cost? Is it a good course? They're talking about golf. The doors open, they step on the elevator, and they stop talking. They turn and they stare at the numbers as it's going up and down. And as soon as they get off the elevator, they immediately start talking again. I don't know if you've thought about it, but elevator life is kind of weird. It's kind of unusual. I personally think that elevators are kind of like a microcosm of our world, of our culture, and of our society. It's a place, a community, where anonymity and isolation are the standards of the day. Uh, Elevators demonstrate that people can be surrounded by other people and not experience true relationship or community. Um, We can be a part of a company. We can be a part of a club, a part of a team. We can even be part of a church and not feel like we belong or are accepted or even worse, acceptable. Um, We can share a plane ride. I don't know how many of you ever get on planes. You sit down next to somebody you never know, and everybody kind of just faces straight ahead. No one talks. Just We're all here doing our own thing. You can share a plane ride, a workspace. You can even share a row with people at church and not really know them at all. Not know anything about their life. Never really talk to them. You're just here taking up space. I believe that what everyone desperately longs for is home. People long for a place where they belong. How many of you guys remember the show Cheers that used to be on years ago? One of the scenes that still, I mean, it just it grips me every time I think about it, is they had this one guy who was a heavier guy. He was overweight. He would walk in every day. The door would open. He would come striding in. He had his bar stool. But as he walked in the door and he starts walking towards his stool, what did everybody cry out? Norm! He had found a place called home at Cheers. And I think that's what everybody's looking for. A place where they belong, where they don't have to settle for elevator existence. Um... This sense of being alone or isolated, I want to suggest to you, isn't necessarily the fault of anyone. I'm not here to place blame or guilt upon anyone. It's not a matter of assigning fault just because we might feel lonely. But I think it takes courage to get on the elevator and turn around and actually face the people. It takes courage to get onto that elevator and actually talk to somebody. Say, how's your day going? What are you doing today? You live here? Is this your condo or am I renting from you and I didn't even know it? Because I only saw the name in my emails. It takes somebody with bravery to actually turn around in your seats and actually talk to somebody. Get to know them. Not just to come in, sit down, hear the worship, hear the preaching, and then leave and say, well, I did my Christian thing today. I don't know anybody. They don't know me. But I did my Christian, my religious thing. I think it takes someone with 
a sense of courage to say, I'm no longer going to accept the status quo. I, I don't want to live this way. I want something better. I want something more. Now, uh, let me kind of approach it from a different way. Um, I don't know how many of you might realize this, but I like flowers. I kill flowers, but I like flowers. I have, I have probably a world-famous black thumb. Uh, anything I touch dies in that regard in terms of flowers. But I love flowers. I love it when I walk out my door and walk over to the church and the circle, the sign circle, is in full bloom. And it's pretty. When all the flowers along the front of the church and the parsonage are blooming, it's it's beautiful thing. It makes the whole place look more inviting to me. In fact, if, if I could say it this way, flowers that are beautiful bring a smile to my heart. I love flowers. But have you ever gone into a restaurant or perhaps a nicer hotel and seen an arrangement of flowers that look beautiful? And you go over just to look at them a little more closely and you lean in to smell and you realize they have no aroma. And you think, that's kind of weird. And you reach up and you feel it and all of a sudden you realize the flowers are plastic or silk. They're not real at all. They look good from a distance, but when you get up close, they're not real. They're fake. They're artificial. Or, uh, this has happened to me. I know I say this with some level of embarrassment, but it has happened to me. I've gone into a place like uh, a hotel. Like Kayrid and I, personally, we prefer Country Inn and Suites. We think that's a safe hotel chain. They tend to do a pretty nice job with decorating and with their rooms. So we go to Country Inn and Suites. We go into Country Inn and Suites, and I know, I know because I've been there enough, that they have bowls with fruit that you can take at any time. And so I go up to the counter and there's this bowl of fruit. And I'm checking in and I do this and I'm eyeing the fruit and it looks really good. And I think, this is good because, you know, I, I could use a banana. I like bananas myself. I could use a banana and Karen could use an apple before we get checked in because the truth is we've got another four or five hours before we're going to actually eat our meal that day, that evening meal. And so I look at that and I think, this is going to be good because I can eat a banana and that'll get me through. And I reach for the banana only to realize it's a little bit lighter than usual. It looks good. It looks real. But it's hollow. It's fake. It's artificial. I want to suggest to you that um, a lot of times our relationships are just like that. Our lives are like that. From a distance, they can look real. They can even look good and inviting. You know, you have all the things that make for good relationships or a good life. At least it appears that way. Like if somebody were to look at your life, would they say you are generally a happy person? You have a job. That's a good start. Have a job. You have a good job. You have job security. You have a job that actually challenges you. It, it causes you to have to have some level of creativity, of innovation, and you like that about your job. You have a seemingly happy marriage. You have a beautiful spouse, or I guess a handsome spouse if you're the other side of it. Uh, you, you seem to be happy from people looking on from the outside. You have children that are doing well. They're well-balanced. 
you have amazing, beautiful, and cute grandchildren just like mine. Um, you have good health. And you seem to be in your sound mind. And so from the outside, from a distance, you look good. But the truth is, do people really know what's going on inside of you? Do those people around you that you're sitting next to know what's really going on in your heart and mind? Do they know about things that you struggle with? Things that challenge you? Do they know about the things that you're facing that seem overwhelming? Or do they only look from a distance and see that you look good? When the truth is, you've got some real issues in your life. Your life is no more real than the picture of those flowers or that fruit. You're hollow inside. All you have to do is think about people. Uh, let me just name a couple that I thought about and some of them I looked up. I thought it was true, but I looked up. I actually found out one I didn't know. I think about people like Ernest Hemingway or the painter Vincent van Gogh or the football player more recently, Junior Seau or actors like Marilyn Monroe, uh, Freddie Prinze, Robin Williams or I didn't know this, I, just, I found this when I was looking up. How many of you know that George Reeves joined the ranks of those people who looked like they had everything that would make for happiness and success, but every one of those people that I mentioned, including Superman, committed suicide. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside, they were hollow. They weren't real. And they had stuff going on. I believe it's only when we are in relationship, when we get up close and personal, that we begin to see whether something is real or not. But here's the rub. Here's the challenge. When you get up close and personal, when we actually and truly decide to make a decision to be authentic and live together as people in reality, we start to see one another's stuff we start to see that their lives can be pretty messy. We begin to see their flaws, their weaknesses, and their sins. And to be honest, it can be pretty frightening to have to deal with people's mess. Because some people are facing things that are so messy we can't figure out how to get out of that maze. When we finally get close enough to people to see what they're really like, our temptation is to run back to our elevator where it's safer, it's more sterile, it's clean. People don't bother me there. People don't talk to me there. Our temptation is to run and hide. It's to put up barriers, to keep people at a distance. Keep your problems on that side of my fence. Fences make good neighbors after all. Or, if we don't run for cover, we actually put on masks to hide who we really are so that they don't see that I'm hollow inside. That I've got real serious problems. Our problem is we run back to the elevator. But when you choose the elevator, you lose the aroma and the flavor of real life. 
This month, our emphasis has been on uh, shifting our focus outward. But to do that, let alone to do it well, we must be willing to recognize that what the world needs is some level of authenticity. They need realness. They need genuineness. Not just a bunch of fake religious people who put on a smile on Sunday morning, who dress up and come to church, and then when they leave, they're no different than anybody else. They've got nothing of substance that connects them with real people. I want to suggest to you there is no such thing, and if if you get nothing else, get this. There is no such thing as real authenticity without relationship. You can't be real without connection with people. So, what we need, I believe, are authentic communities. What we need as a church is to become an authentic community. A relational community. God has designed us that the real depth of life that we all desperately want can only be found when we're in relationship with other people in community. Listen to these verses. You don't have to turn there. They're in a translation you probably don't have with you. Uh, Ephesians 4.25 says this in the message translation. What this adds up to then is this. No more lies. No more pretense. Or another way of saying it is no more pretending. The verse goes on and says, tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we are all connected to each other after all. When you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. When you pretend, when you lie about what's going on in your life, when you put on a mask and an image, all you're doing is deceiving yourself. Paul also says in Romans 12, verse 9, Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. What I want to do this morning is um, talk to you about ways of establishing, of implementing, of maintaining community. I don't know how far I'll get. Um, It's very possible that I will only get through half of it and then I have to make the decision. Do I throw away the rest of it and just move on because next month we have a new theme? Or do I come back next week and be thankful that I can actually carry that theme forward a little bit? Uh, I'll decide this week. Um, But I believe what we need is a community of people where people feel like they're accepted as they are. That doesn't mean we want everybody to stay as they are because I don't know about you, but I want to change. Do you want to change? I want to change. I want to grow. I want to mature. I want to get better. But we still need to be able to love and accept people as they are and help them to grow into something more because they have found in us a safe place to be real. And I don't think people will feel safe being real here until they know that we're real. That we don't put on masks. We don't pretend. Until they see that we are a place full of real people. Real people on a journey, but real people, they won't feel safe being real. And that's what we're about. So, I want to approach this in two ways. You might only get part one, and if not part two, then work it out yourself. Um, The first part is more about kick-starting this whole thing. It's about how do we look at what the big picture is. In fact, a better way of saying it is, the first part is the big picture what. 
It's about how to implement community. How to establish it. The second part, which if I don't get to that, you'll have to work it out yourself. The second part is kind of the, um, the how-to's. It's like bringing it down. How do we actually make this work on a day-by-day basis? How do we do what the big picture evokes for us? So I'm going to look at first today how we uh, begin to establish community. So if you were to have your notes, the first thing that I'm going to deal with is establishing community. That's kind of what I'm about, how to implement it. So under that, number one, I'm going to look at number one first, is recognizing and admitting our need for others. Recognizing and admitting our need for others. We have to start with a basic premise, which is, I can't make it alone. I need other people. There was a time in my life when I was back in Bible school when someone asked, um, if you were to be marooned somewhere, where would you like to be marooned, and what do you want with you? I said, I would be marooned on a mountaintop in a cabin, and I would like all the food and drink I need and all the books I can read. That's all I need. Because at that point in my life, I thought I didn't want relationships because relationships were messy. Relationships called trouble. And so I didn't want relationships. But having lived a few years since then, I realized that what every single one of us needs is we need people. We need one another. We cannot make it alone. And in the Bible, one of the writers, James, says something interesting, and I I didn't post it for you, but you can listen. James tells us in chapter 1, he says, When a person observes his natural face in a mirror, he observes himself and then goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. That's James 1, 23. You look in a mirror, you see your face, you leave, and then you forget. How many of you have ever looked at a picture of yourself from days gone by and you thought, was that really me? No. I never look like that. That's the kind of thing James is talking about. Um, I want to suggest to you that we don't really know who we are as a person until we get in relationship with other people. Let me explain it this way. Um, Back when I went to Elam, uh, which is the Bible school I attended, I was 18 when I went to Elam. And if you had asked me at the time, I would have thought, when I compare myself to people around me, which I didn't know well, and they didn't know me well, but when I compare myself, I thought, I I did okay. I'm an okay kind of guy. I I don't have some of the problems that Josh has. I'm much better than Josh, and I'm way better than Ken. So I'm doing okay. I'm okay. I mean, I don't really know Josh, and I don't really know Ken, but... From the outside looking in, I think I'm okay. In fact, if I had to rate myself on a scale of 1 to 10 back then, I probably would have rated myself at 7. I mean, everybody has to learn and grow and mature. Everybody has to get better, but I was doing pretty good. I mean, I, I, my, the people who knew me seemed to like me okay. I, I can remember uh, I took my first test at Elon. Uh, it was for Old Testament survey, which was a five-credit-hour course. Old Testament survey. It was a long class. Five hours. And we took our first test. And when the teacher handed back the test, he said, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. He said, number one, the good news is that three people passed. 
the bad news is the rest of you failed abysmally. And so inside my heart is sinking. I'm thinking, I studied, I thought I did okay, but it must have been way worse than I thought. I get the test back. Valentin Novikov, who was a married student who was brilliant, he got a hundred. Another girl named Winslow, she got like 90 or something like that. I got an 87. I was one of the three. And suddenly, my equity among my freshman stream right there went way up. I was now smart. I'd never been smart in my whole life. I'm smart. And so all of a sudden, I had kids asking to come and study with me. How did you do it? So, I rated myself pretty, pretty okay. I was a seven. I, I got to learn. I got to grow. But I'm doing okay. And then I got married. I don't know if you realize it or not, but when you get married, you find out you're not who you thought you were. You're not as good as you thought you were at all. You got stuff. And by the way, so do they. And suddenly, their stuff begins to rub up against your stuff. And I went from a positive 7 to a negative 7 real fast. And then, you have kids. And you find out how selfish you really are. All I want you to do is stay in bed. I think one night, I don't know, Karen could correct me, I think I put Jonathan in bed probably 50 times. Each time you'd swat him on the rear. He was a little kid. He wasn't a teenager. He was a little kid. You swat him on the rear end. You put him in bed and you say, Stay there! Now, we were trying to train him. (laughs) Now! But the truth is, the thing that bothered me the most is I wanted to watch Syracuse basketball game. That's what it was about. It wasn't really that I thought he needed to stay in bed. I wanted him to be quiet and leave me alone so I could watch the game. I want you to stay in bed in the morning because I want to stay in bed in the morning. You get married and you have kids and you find out, I got more stuff than I ever thought I had. I got real issues in life. And you never find that out if you don't actually get close to people. If you don't get up close and personal and actually live life with people, that's when you begin to really find out who you are. Um, I realized that people began to be my mirror. That I had developed for myself my own mirror. My mirror was one of those funhouse mirrors that made me look taller and thinner and smarter. But when I got married and I had kids, and when I started actually pastoring people, I began to realize they were my more real mirror. They actually helped me to realize who I really was. This need for others, I believe, is rooted deep in our own soul, and I believe it's put there by God. It was God who said to the first man he ever created, it's not good for man to be alone. We need people. We need people to help us to see who we are and to grow into something more. So on a very fundamental, on a foundational level, built into the warp and woof of our being is this great need for people. I am not whole without others. They 
help me to know who I am and to become something more even. That's what people are about. So the first thing about building relational communities, authentic relational communities is recognize and admit that we need one another. We need people around us. I know some of you, even sitting here today, you have lived your life like I don't need anybody. I don't care. I don't care what you think about me. I can remember I was in a Sunday school class as a young kid. Uh, My parents uh, at that time were not Christians. And the Assembly of God Church, which was in Waterloo, which was about seven, eight miles away from our house, would send somebody out, pick up us kids every Sunday morning so that we could go to church, Sunday school and then church. And my parents liked it because my parents had been out drinking the night before and they liked to sleep in. So that worked well for them. They would pick us up and I can remember Mr. Byther. He was the pastor of the church, was our Sunday school teacher. And he was talking about caring about what people think. And I can remember at the time saying, I don't care what anybody thinks. I got to tell you, I don't care who says that. It's a lie. Every one of us does care. Because built into our hearts is the knowledge that we aren't whole without other people. Number two, the second way we implement this is we work on cultivating deeper relationships. It's not enough just to join a club or an organization and say that's it. Uh, Here in Warsaw, I am a member of Kiwanis. I don't know if you guys have ever heard about Kiwanis, but Kiwanis is a civic organization. And the reason I joined Kiwanis, even back when I was in Watertown, before I moved here, and then when I came here, I joined again. I joined Kiwanis because I like their emphasis on children, especially children with special needs. They sponsor the Special Olympics every year. And I loved going and working the Special Olympics. I mean, that was one of the joys that I had. So I like their vision. But here's the problem. Their meetings are on Monday night. How many of you know anything about my Monday nights? What is it? I'm sorry. Date night. You want to plan a meeting? Go ahead. You want a special board meeting on Monday night? Go for it. I won't be there. Because that's my wife and my date night. We go on a date night on Monday night. We're not going to change it for anybody. I'm sorry. Unless there's some emergency. It's our date night. So tomorrow, what am I going to do tomorrow night? I'm going to go on a date with my wife. Kiwanis meets on Monday night. Do you know that since I joined Kiwanis here in Warsaw, I have not been to one meeting? Not one. I go to their special events. I help with things. But I don't make their meetings because their meetings are on Monday night. And I would suggest to you that a lot of people have my Kiwanis kind of relationship with people. They don't really know me, and I don't, really, I don't even know who all the Kiwanians are. I don't know their names. When I do see them at special events, ahead of time, I will try to look up my notes to remember what their name is. Because I only see them once or twice a year. But that's how we treat some relationships. You're sitting in this church. You're sitting in pews, in rows, in this church, and you don't know the people. You don't talk to them. You don't know who they are. You don't know what they're dealing with in their life. It's a Kiwanis style of relationship. Surfacy and light at best. But to survive in this world, to really thrive, we need more than a surface kind of relationship. We need something deeper and something more real, something with teeth in it. And uh, I don't think those kinds of relationships happen by accident. 
I think that kind of deeper, real, authentic relationship takes time and it takes work. Um, how many of you ever went to college, by the way? Okay, how many of you actually lived on campus at your college? Okay, you had roommates? Yeah, okay. Here's what I often hear from people today, from you. I wish I had relationships like I did back in my college days. Those things were close, they were real. I mean, we, we talked about real life issues. I mean, they got messy, but they were wonderful and are still friends today. I don't have friends like that anymore. I wish I had friends like that. I want to suggest to you that you have forgotten what it was really like back in your college days. Think about your first day of college. Um, you're put into a dorm room. You didn't get a choice in it probably. You were put in a dorm room. And you were made to room with somebody you didn't know. Somebody very different from you. But because you're thrust into that kind of artificial environment, you're forced to get to know one another. Over time, you actually learn how to talk together. You go to some of the same classes. You might even have some of the same professors. You complain about the same homework load. You go to the same sporting events. You've made connection. And over time, you actually learned how to appreciate and love one another. You became deep friends. But it took time. And it took effort. There were times, you forget that there were times when that roommate drove you nuts. When that roommate bugged you because they're borrowing your stuff without permission. When they're staying up late at night when all you want to do is go to sleep and they want to talk about how that relationship they had is falling apart and they're crying and they want you to hug them and they want you to be close to them and you just want to sleep. You forget sometimes how they didn't have a job and you did. And so they were constantly waiting for you to buy pizza so they could have pizza. You remember those days. You didn't have any ability to say no because what am I going to do? Just be mean? But even though life got up close and personal and even though life got messy at times, in the midst of it all, you became friends. And you forget that today it takes the same amount of work. The same amount of time. The willingness to push through hard stuff. Even when they're quite different from you. You push through. And you get to know people. Those relationships don't happen by accident. Many people want deeper relationships today, but they don't want to do the work. They don't want to be able to get to know people. It takes time. It takes work. It will involve frustrations. And it will involve a lot of forgiveness. But it has the potential of being life-changing if you don't give up. Paul put it this way in one of his most personal letters to his friends at a church uh, in a city called Thessalonica, which is in Greece. He said this in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, We cared so much for you. And pay attention, by the way, to the relational words that Paul uses. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the Gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. He used three words there. He used care and share and dear. People aren't a means to an end for us. 
the valued parts of our body, of our family. Our church is called Family Life Church on purpose because we care about family, but we also want to be one big family. So although we believe God for growth, we don't ever want to get so big that we can't be a family, that we can't know one another and have connections. If you've lived long at all, you realize that people treat one another in different ways. Some people treat people as scenery. They're there, I know they're there, they're in my vision, they're in my line of sight, but they really don't have much to do with my life. Kind of like um, Karen and I, one of the things that we enjoy doing is we enjoy going to either Ohio or Lancaster, Pennsylvania because we enjoy seeing the Amish. I love, it, it takes me back to the days when I was a kid and we were working on the farm. And it was simpler times. It was uh, families working together. I can remember one time we were in Ohio and they were doing a barn raising. And we're there sitting on the side of the road watching them do this barn raising together. The whole community had come together to help them build this barn. And they're out there with all this stuff that they're putting together. And we're sitting on the side of the road and they come over and they want to know, first of all, if we have a problem and then do we want to help? I love watching the Amish. In a way, they're kind of like scenery. I don't have relationship with them. I'm just gawking at them. I have no real relationship or connection with them. And that's how some people treat people around them, like they're just scenery. Glad you're there. You fill in the spaces. But I don't have any connection with you. Some people treat people like machinery. It's utilitarian. They're like tools that you need to get a job done. You don't care about them. You just use them. Kind of like some Englishers use the Amish. They know that the Amish are known to be hardworking and uh, honest, and they do good work. And so some Englishers will actually hire the Amish to do work for them, but they've got no relationship with them, no connection. In the same way, it's possible to be in this church and to have a utilitarian relationship with people. I use it for my... It's one of the things I hate, by the way. It's one of the things... I don't put my foot down hard on too many things. But one of the things I do is I am not willing for you to come in here and use the members of this church, the family that we have developed, in order to sell something to them. You know, you, you know you've got the product that you are convinced is wonderful. Great! But don't use our membership list as a salesman point. We're family. Some people use it as scenery. Some people use people as machinery. But the truth is, we need to treat people like people. Like they really matter. Like they're in relationship to us. Number three, real quick. I am going way too long. Sorry. Number three, and I won't get on. Number three, commit to authenticity. It's not enough to say, yeah, having a few friends would be nice. It's not even enough to say, I want something more and deeper. It means you have to actually get started on some level. You have to actually take action. You have to do something. You have to commit yourself to going beyond surface talk. Hey, how's the weather? Oh, it was raining. How'd the rain sound on your new roof? Oh, okay, yeah. It's supposed to rain all week. Yeah, I heard that. I saw that. Yeah. I heard we might get a hurricane and a tornado. My mother-in-law told me, we might get a tornado. Pretty sure it's coming to Warsaw. Yeah, okay. That's it. That's as deep as we go. 
How you feel? And before somebody can even answer, you keep walking. It was just a passing pleasantry. You didn't really care. You have to be willing to take steps to action. I wrote this phrase, this is mine, but you can do with it as you want. I'd say this, authenticity occurs when the masks come off, when conversations get real, when hearts get vulnerable, when lives are shared, when accountability is invited, and when commitments to true community are made. That's when you start to get some authenticity. You drop the masks to the grave. And you say, I want to be real. And I don't mean being real just because you feel like being nasty today, so I'm just being real. I'm talking about, talking about why you're upset inside. What's driving you? One of the shows that I liked growing up, maybe you didn't, and I'm sorry if you didn't, uh, you've missed out, was Star Trek. Any of you Trekkies? How many of you were Trekkers before you were Trekkies? I was like, first generation. All you guys who came on later as Trekkies, you guys are older, come on. Us guys, we were the originals. They came along with a new show that took me a while to actually like it. I did grow to like it. It was called The Next Generation. Some of you guys remember it. The Next Generation with Jean-Luc Picard um, came up against a race of being. They always were meeting new races of being. But they came up against a race of being called the Borg. The Borg were an amazing race of beings. They, they almost weren't beings. They were more machine. But they would meet other races of beings and they would have the same thing that they would say every single time. They would say, resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. Now, in that context, assimilation was not a good thing. But I want to suggest to you that in the church, I think assimilation could be a really good thing. Because I define assimilation as becoming absorbed in the life of others as an active participant. Becoming involved. Getting involved with what people are dealing with at whatever level they're willing for you to do that. Paul put it this way. This is Paul's assimilation definition. We imparted our own lives. That's what assimilation is. Assimilation is not merely cheering people on, not merely giving them our best wishes, it's actually making room for them in our life so that we can share together. It's becoming a part. It's saying, if this affects you, um, my family, my personal family, uh, the Lanaville clan, which is big and broad, uh, all over the nation, uh, I have siblings that will not talk to any other sibling in the whole family. They just will have no involvement. I have other siblings that will talk, but when they talk, it doesn't go well. It just, it's, it just is not a, an easy thing. But recently, one of the siblings uh, called and let the family know that her son was dying. Her son was in the final stages of uh, liver cancer, uh, liver failure, and it was not going well. We didn't have a lot of contact with his family. But I can tell you this. Because their family, even though it would be messy, and we knew it would be messy, we knew it would be challenging, we still got on a plane and we flew to Charlotte and we spent time with the family. Because even though it's messy, even though it's hard, they're still family. 
and family pulls together. That's what it's about. Being willing to say, I need you. So, uh, I was hoping when I first started this to actually go into the next part, which actually becomes a little bit more practical. Steps, and I, and I don't know what I'll do this week. I'll think about it. But either way, uh, I wanted you to get the bigger picture. What we are about as a church. As a church, we are committed to loving God. We want God to be welcome in our midst. And there are people who come in the door and they look around and they say, I don't get all this raising of the hands and stuff like that. I understand. I really do. It wasn't my background growing up either. It can look odd. It can look off-putting. But we are going to make room for God and for people to go after God with all of their heart. Our number one priority is to love God. But we also want to love people. We want to make room for real people. And when real people come in with real stuff, it doesn't mean that we just let them go wild. It does mean that we say, you're loved, you're accepted, and we're going to walk together with you. We're going to help you. Whatever that situation might be. Uh, This morning, it was interesting that um, we actually had a friend. He was a friend standing at our back door, uh, and he was standing there in uniform. And I could see people turning around and just staring. I had people come in the door and say, is there a problem? Is he here for somebody? No. Policemen are even welcome here. Military people are welcome here. Factory workers are welcome here. Lawyers are welcome here. Teachers are welcome here. People are welcome. doesn't matter what you do. You're welcome. You are a part of our family. We want you here. We want to learn how to love better and to have real, authentic community. Here's a quote I came across that I like. I want to end with. It says this, Authenticity occurs when the head and the heart meets at the lips. I would add, meet at the lips and the hands. Because if you don't do something about it, it doesn't go very far. Authenticity occurs when the head and the heart meet at the lips and the hands. John put it this way, if we walk in the light, that means being real, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship or relationship with one another. And the blood of Christ Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. James puts it this way, make this your practice. Confess your faults to each other. Pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. We will never be healed if we don't learn how to be real with one another, if we continue to hide our stuff. What I'm going to ask is for you to bow your heads if you would. I'm going to end there today. If you'd bow your heads. And this is an invitation. If this has struck a chord in your heart, and you say, I I want that. I'm made for deeper relationships. I've learned how to shut off my emotions, my feelings, because it gets too messy. But I know that doesn't work because God made me with a heart. He made me with emotions, with feelings. He made me needing other people. But in order to get there, we've got to be able to be real with one another. And again, that doesn't mean you, you, you wear your feelings on your sleeves in front of everybody. I'm not talking about that. And if I had gone on, you would have heard that. But it does mean finding somebody or somebodies with whom you can be real. You can be honest. You can be true. That's what this is about. If that strikes a chord in your heart, knowing 
that it means it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you being real. You can't ask them to be real if you're not going to be real. You can't expect community if there's not authenticity. Then it just becomes fake. But if that is something that's in your heart, and you're willing to work hard on developing a few deeper relationships, you're willing to take the time and the effort and the messiness of it, you're willing to be real, if that's in your heart, I'm going to ask you to stand because you're saying, God, that's what I want. That's what I want. Again, this might not be all of you. That's okay. You're not all in the same place. Don't feel like you have to stand because somebody else is. If this struck a chord for you, though, you say, that's what I long for. I long for something real, something authentic, and I'm willing to pay the price to get that. I want to pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, I come as one of those who stands. And I know that I cannot be all that you have made me to be if I don't live in relationship and in community with others. So I stand with my friends who are standing. And I say, God, help us to become more real. Help us to be sincere, without cracks filled in with wax. Help us to be authentic. And Lord, where we have worn masks and we have pretended, where we have put up walls as barriers to keep out people's stuff, we've set up boundaries, where we have established lines in the sand. We said, I'll let people come this close and no closer. Father, we, we consciously take down the fence. We take down the wall. We erase the line in the sand. We take off our masks and we say, God, help us to live better than that. Help us to live more real. And then, Father, as that begins to occur, Help us to be mature enough to handle people's stuff. Their weaknesses, their flaws, their sins. But to be able to love and accept through it all. To say, you're a part of the family. Even with all your stuff, you're a part of the family. I'm never going to call sin okay, but you're a part of the family. You're loved and you're accepted. You're part of my family. Help us to live that way, Father. To create community here. And we're not going to be close friends with every single person here. There's too many for close, deep, personal friends. But we're going to have friendship with some. We're going to purpose to get close. And to build that which you have intended. Lord, we commit in our hearts by standing that we're going to go after it. We're going to go after it. We're going to long for it. We're going to pray for it. We're going to work hard for it. Now I'd ask uh, if you would, if you're not standing, if you'd stand with us as well. And I pray the blessing of the Lord upon you. The blessing of God which creates within you a richness of soul and spirit that provides for you according to all of your needs. I pray that His face would shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord would lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And that you would live with the favor of God resting upon you every single day 
of your life. That you would know His love, His passion for you. That is the good word which I leave with you today. The benediction. In the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your day.